welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're continuing on in our uh, Advent series here that we've been talking, His Name Shall Be. It's, we've been focusing on this one particular prophecy in Isaiah throughout this series. Uh, we are in week three of it, and so we are once again going to be looking at the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, verses 2 through 7, so if you would turn there with me in your Bibles, and if you stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah writes, The people walking in darkness have, been, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoicing at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? So, Father, we come uh, in gratitude for the Messiah that has come to establish your kingdom and to invite us into it. Pray that you would open our hearts that we might receive him. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned, we are in the third week of Advent, the third week of our study into this prophecy. And the name's... Uh, by which the Messiah will be known. As Mike has said about this prophecy, it was given to uh, the people of Judah in, uh, in the midst of really a threatening and chaotic time. Uh, Jerusalem at this time is under threat from the king of Assyria, uh, the, which is kind of the big bully nation of the world at that time. It was not a good thing to be conquered by Assyria, uh, nations got conquered by Assyria, suffered, you know, huge tariffs, forced labor, executions, and of course the prospect of being dragged into exile. The king of Judah at that time, the one that was, you know, kind of charged with leading uh, the people through this mess was uh, King Ahaz, and who himself was a mess. Uh, He had broken the covenant with Yahweh. He was deeply immersed in the uh, pagan practices of idol worship to the extent of sacrificing his own son and burning his son in sacrifice to an idol. The people of Judah were in chaos. They were bracing for war, famine, suffering. The words of Isaiah, they were walking in darkness, living in darkness. In the shadow of death. And so it was into these days of anxiety and worry and tension that Isaiah brings this prophecy. 
that one day, one day there will be cause for rejoicing. That the people who now walk in darkness will see a great light. That the yoke that was weighing them down would be broken. Every boot that had been used in battle would be thrown into the fire because it would, wouldn't need them anymore. A child will be born. And the government, Isaiah writes, will be on his shoulders. This prophecy is about a new ruler. A new king. Which in those days, you know, a change of ruler wasn't necessarily, you know, a good thing, right? I mean, really in a monarchy, who the next ruler is, you know, it's not based on competency. It's not based on any kind of, well, qualifications. It's kind of based on who's next in line. And so who you get is really a crapshoot. I mean, you could get someone better could get someone worse I guess in that way it's not really that different from a democracy but so whether this announcement here of a new king was good or bad well really it all depends on the character of who this new king was going to be and so Isaiah prophesies the good news about this coming ruler about the coming messiah and he mentions these names, these titles by which this new ruler would be known as, describe, as descriptors of his character. He would be known as Wonderful Counselor, as Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And over the last couple of weeks, we've uh, talked about the first two of these titles, what they mean, what they say about the character of the Messiah, the character of Jesus. And today, we're continuing on in this study, uh, talking about this title, Everlasting Father. And really the question, what about Jesus being everlasting father is good news? Why would describing the Messiah that way have brought comfort and joy to the people who, to that point, were walking in great darkness? Because these days, of course, the idea of an everlasting father might not be received as good news, necessarily, right? I mean, if it is if your experience with your father has been good, Right? Well, in that case, to say that Jesus is like an everlasting version of your dad, well, that's great. But not everybody grows up with a great concept of father. Actually, for almost one-third of the children in America these days, they grow up without a father at all in their house. For others, their idea of father is that he's dangerous or abusive or harmful. For others, the thought of their father is one who can never be pleased or that is never quite satisfied with what they do or become. These days when we talk of the, the patriarchy, we hear it as something to stand up to, to be fought against, to tear down as an oppressive, restrictive monument to injustice. For a teenager itching to get out of, on their own, to be free, to be to experience, to live, the idea of an everlasting father, well, it's more of a 
It's more of a sentence than a promise. So it might be hard. It might be hard for some of us to hear this promise that the Messiah, that Jesus is going to be like an everlasting father. It might be hard for some of us to hear that. It's good news. But it was good news for the people to whom Isaiah is speaking. And I don't think that that is because dads were better back then than they are now. I'm sure that the relationships between fathers and children back then wasn't perfect. It was strained with all the same tensions that we have now. It's just that in, in that setting, fathers had more of a prescribed role to play in the lives of their children. Regardless of whether a particular uh, father was a good father or not. At the very least, everyone knew the job that the father was supposed to be doing. The role that he was supposed to be playing. And because of that, in the Jewish community at the time, father was a powerful idea that carried meaning for really every aspect of your life. And so it was a term that was used to refer to, to more than just your biological birth father. It was a term that you would use to refer, you know, like to your ancestors. Like if there was some significant, you know, powerful, reputable person in your family tree that you, you would refer to that person as your father. It was also a term that could refer to a ruler or a king or a governor of a city, that their role of governing the city or governing the community was similar to the role of a father over his household. And so it carried great significance to refer to the Messiah as everlasting father. Not as a reference that Jesus was like the father, like in reference to his role in the Holy Trinity, but as a reference to his role in the lives of his people. One of the main roles ascribed to someone with the title father was this idea of identity and belonging. You see, in those days in the Jewish community, your father was your ID card in society. Your father was like your social security number, your driver's license, and your passport all wrapped up into one. Your father was your guarantee to a piece of land in the country, your guarantee of having a voice in the community, of being represented when decisions are made. So you can imagine for a people who were stuck under a chaotic, disreputable, unstable king, for a people whose acting father was a king that was bringing shame and uncertainty to their identity. The idea that the Messiah, that God's special anointed servant, would be coming would, and be the anchor, the cornerstone of their eternal identity. Well, that was great news. You see, as we talked about in our last series, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe makes us who we are, what we believe our identity is, that, that becomes the source of everything else about our life. And you don't have to look very far in our culture these days to see that we are a people floundering in our identity. 
We are struggling to find something to anchor our sense of self to. We are running around looking to our jobs, our political parties, our friend groups, our sexuality, even our professional teams. We're desperate for something that will give us a name, that will help us feel like we belong somewhere to something, to someone. And yet for all of the options that are out there, for us to anchor our identity, like time after time, all these things, are they just fail. Rather than belonging, we find ourselves excluded. Rather than represented, we, we end up feeling used. And instead of feeling like we have a place, a permanent place with sure footing and a firm anchor for our soul, we find ourselves adrift in an ocean full of other people adrift. But that's not the way it has to be. Because Messiah has come. A firm anchor, a firm foundation where we can place our identity. Jesus, the Messiah, the everlasting Father, can be our identity that does not shake or fade or disappear or embarrass. Which, you know, some of you might want to stop me right there and say, what do you mean by won't embarrass? I mean, Christians, Christians are tremendously embarrassing. The church has been really embarrassing. Which, you're right. At times, that can be true. And also is why our identity should never be in Christians. In what tribe or group or sect we belong to. Our identity should never be in the church or in a church. Even a church as beautiful and perfect and healthy and sound as Oak Hills. Our identity if we want to be anchored and secure and unmovable in a very shaky and unpredictable world, should be in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. Our belonging should be in Christ. The only thing that matters about us, Christ. You see, in addition to providing identity for the individual, the role of the father in the Jewish community was to serve as the connecting tissue between people. This is why we read of the Jews referring to themselves as children of Abraham. In other words, their ancestor Abraham served as the connecting tissue between them in their community. And so when Isaiah refers to the Messiah as being eternal father, everlasting father, he is telling them that the Messiah would now be the connecting tissue between them in their community. A community, by the way, that would not just include Jews, but would include people from all over the world. This is why the Apostle Paul could write things like here, meaning in the kingdom of God, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. All other identifiers 
the end of the day, they end up dividing. Gender, race, nationality, economics, education. They all include us with some, but divide us from others. But when we allow Jesus the Messiah to be our everlasting Father, well, there there is room for everyone. There is room for everyone, you know, because, of course, in the kingdom of the Messiah, there is also enough for everyone. You see, as part of the identity that comes with the idea of father for, for the Jews was this promise of provision. The child would have access to the wealth and provision of the father's household. So, you know, who your father was, well, meant that that's where the stuff you need for life was going to come from. Food, clothing, shelter, a roof over your head. All those things flowed from your father's house, which is great, right? If your father is a stable, level-headed, reliable, generous person. If your father was an unstable, impulsive, inconsistent, tight-fisted, begrudging kind of person, well, eh. Then your hopes for provision was also unstable and insecure. It's amazing how even though we live in the most prosperous, technologically advanced country in the world, in, frankly, one of the most prosperous communities in that country, we are still incredibly insecure about our provision. We sit in massive houses wondering if there will be enough room for us. We draw massive salaries wondering if we will have enough money. We live with full garages wondering if we will have enough stuff. And really the fact that right now as I'm saying this, we're thinking to ourselves, wait a minute, I don't have a massive house. I don't draw a massive salary. I don't have that much stuff. That just proves my point. We're worried about where our provision is going to come from. But with Jesus as our everlasting Father, we don't have to worry about provision, about what we will wear or what we will eat or where we will, where we will sleep. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, do not worry, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the pagans. Run after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that, you're need, that you need them. See, this is the kingdom of which Jesus is king. The kind of king, kingdom with plenty of room. Plenty, really, of all the things that we need. With him as our eternal Father, we can be sure that we will be provided for forever. Last implication of what it meant to be father uh, that I want to point out is the idea of protection. The most vulnerable position to be in in the ancient Middle Eastern world was to be fatherless. To be fatherless would leave you open to abuse, to slavery, to you know what today would be we would call being trafficked. 
It was a pitiable state. It was really the worst thing that could happen to a person or a community, really. To be fatherless was to be utterly defenseless against the dangers of the world. No one to stand up for you in court. No one to have your back, if you will, in a conflict. No one to advocate for you to the powers that be. To be fatherless was to be alone. Which, you know, uh, on, on the surface it might be tempting to think that this one doesn't really apply to us, right? Because, you know, we don't really need protecting that much. I mean, we live in Folsom, for crying out loud. We are perfectly safe here. We live in America, you know, with laws and inalienable rights. Our borders are protected by the most powerful army in the world. And if all else fails, well, by golly, you know, we're packing our own personal protection. Why would we need an everlasting father to protect us? And yet, even with all that, we're still afraid, aren't we? We're still afraid. You see, we live in a tremendously accusing environment. Left and right accusers rise up against us. Whether it's the vitriol that flows continuously on social media, the inflammatory rhetoric of our talk show entertainment culture, the judgmental culture at our school or our work constantly evaluating us, constantly finding us wanting. And then on top of that, of course, there is the accusing voice of the enemy. Perpetually reminding us that we are not safe. That any second the world might turn on us. It's no wonder why anxiety runs rampant in this little slice of heaven that we live in. No wonder we constantly feel like we have to defend ourselves. That there's threat and terror on every side. The promise of the Messiah Jesus as our everlasting Father. So we don't have to face the dangers alone. Jesus the Messiah does not join the chorus of our accusers. On the contrary, Jesus the Messiah, our everlasting Father, is our advocate. He is our protector against the accusing voices that join together and scheme to take away our lives. Even when we're caught in the act, clearly guilty. Jesus the Messiah is our advocate, our protector. He is always comes to our defense, even at the cost of his own life. Identity, community, provision, protection. These are some of the benefits that are implied when Isaiah announces that the Messiah would be like an everlasting father to the people. Which again, would have been great news to the Jews who are stuck under the reign of a loose cannon like King Ahaz. And frankly, is great news to us living in the uncertain chaotic world that we are in as well. 
but along with the promise of the Messiah being everlasting father, was also the reality that this fatherness, I'm making up a word today, this fatherness uh, could be rejected. A, really, a reality, of course, that the people of Jerusalem were very familiar with. Really, the entire history of the people of Jerusalem was the story of them rejecting the fatherness of Yahweh. Throughout the story of Israel and the Jews, over and over again, you see God extending the offer to be their father, but the people over and over and over rejecting it. And so even though Isaiah proclaims this great news to the people of Jerusalem, the fact that Messiah would be called everlasting father would ultimately mean absolutely nothing to them. Because, of course, they rejected this Messiah. The Apostle John writes at the beginning of his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 9, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus, the Messiah, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas, came to be our everlasting Father. But he will not force his fatherness on us. It's a reality that we see in Jesus' story that he tells of the prodigal son. Right? This kid who rejects the fatherness of his dad uh, and willingly chooses fatherlessness for the sake of cashing in whatever he could for the thrill of the moment to experience life on his own. Of course, uh, the scariest part of the story of the prodigal son isn't the one that rejected membership in the father's house and ran away to waste his life and ended up feeding pigs on a farm. Actually, the scariest part of the story was the older brother who didn't run away, but actually stayed at the father's house and yet still ultimately rejected the fatherness. Right? He didn't step into the relationship with his dad, even though he lived in the house day in and day out. He did not allow the father to be his father. In the same way, we too can reject the Messiah as our everlasting father. And there may be a lot of reasons why we would choose to do that. I mean, one of them might be, as I mentioned earlier, the baggage that comes with the whole father idea. The father wounds that you carry might be tricking you into thinking that Jesus is like that. Or it might be because of other people who have 
claimed his name have misrepresented him or hurt you or misdirected you in some way. Or it might be because the voice of the accuser is right in your ear telling you this is not for you. Jesus is for other kind of people. Not for people like you. If that's where you're stuck, may I just invite you to take a deeper look into who Jesus is. Don't just take my word for it or some podcaster's word or somebody else's word for who Jesus is. Give him a chance to reveal himself to you. Allow him, the real him, to be the foundation of your identity, the foundation of what makes you, you. Let his love for you, his acceptance of you, uh, his connection with you, to be the most important thing about you. Step back. Allow him to be your provider, not just of the material stuff, but maybe even more importantly, of the love and the presence and the friendship stuff that your life really depends on. Let him be your protector. Let his presence, his angels, his strength be the hedge of protection around your life, around your loved ones. Let his voice, his opinion, let his cross be your defense against all the accusing voices that are conspiring against you. See, I'm convinced that if you open up the space, open up your heart, you will find Jesus the Messiah, the everlasting Father, is actually the answer to the deepest longings of your heart. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? And so, Jesus, we, we come to you uh, in light of this promise, in light of this invitation. Recognizing that we struggle with receiving you as our everlasting Father. That there are portions of that whole idea that we're not quite sure of. And so I pray, Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to us in unmistakable ways that we might know for sure who you are. Jesus, we really are stumbling around in darkness, living in the shadow of death. We recognize you as the great light that has come into this world, and so we just pray that you would help us turn our eyes to you. Let you be our everlasting Father.